Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. Welcome, historians and history buffs, to a very special episode of Whining About History, where normally it's just two besties whining about women you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. Today we have a very special guest, and it is our distinct pleasure to welcome a woman you should know about if you don't, <laughs> uh, Buzzy Jackson. Uh, Buzzy is an award-winning author of three nonfiction books, as well as a novel, To Die Beautiful, which is the book we're discussing today. To Die Beautiful is a novel based on the true story of Hanny Shaft, who we covered in episode 55, a shy law student living in Nazi-occupied Netherlands, fuck the Nazis, who never dreamed of being a fighter. It's a tale of formidable defiance told through the eyes of a young heroine so notorious that Hitler himself personally ordered her capture. Buzzy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. And it's it's nice to talk to folks who already are somewhat familiar with Hani's story since you guys already covered her. That's awesome. I like, this is the first interview I've done where anybody even knew who she was. So you get a gold star for that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Way back when we covered Hani, Truce and Freddie all in like one episode and it was awesome. Also, is that Great. how you, okay. I, I know you just gave us props for knowing who she was, but is that how you pronounce her name? Hani? I or- mean, that's how I think Han, I pronounce it Hani Shaft. It's I don't speak Dutch, but that's the closest approximation to, you know, what I heard Dutch people call her. Mm-hmm. Um, I I also call Truce and Freddie, um, Truce and Freddie, and then their last name Overstegen. But in mm-hmm. Dutch, it's like Overstachen or something. Yeah. I don't even try. I don't even try. So don't worry about it. Yeah, don't worry about it. People know who you're talking about. Yep. Um, we are not known for our good pronunciations, especially when it comes to French, the French language. It's a beautiful language that neither of us can pronounce. So I'm like, oh God, we can't be saying her name wrong when we're interviewing the author who wrote a book on her. (laughs) I mean, what are you going to do? It's enough that you're covering these stories. Don't worry about it. It's you're putting, you're putting the good news out there. That's all you have to do. Okay. I'm going to take that clip. Yep. And I'm going to put it on our website. <laughs> and whenever someone's like, you pronounced that wrong. I'm going to email an author tell us. I'm going to email them yeah. the clip. Yeah. M- m- most of our listeners are very nice about it. But <laughs> <laughs> There's always a few sticklers out there, you know, yep. and life's too short. 100%. Very much so. Mm-hmm. So, Buzzy, you want to just yes. tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and everything like that? Sure. Um, I, uh, my background, as you mentioned, I wrote three nonfiction books before this, and this is my first novel I've ever published, which is very exciting. Um, I have a background in history. I did a PhD in history from at Berkeley. And um, I really did that because I knew I wanted to write books, but I felt like I really needed to know more (laughs) about about everything. And, um, and I'm one of those nerds who really loved graduate school. I Mm -hmm. had a great experience. And my first book was actually um, based on the dissertation I wrote, uh, which is a history of American women blues singers called a bad woman feeling good. And 
that was really gratifying. And I really thought I would, um, you know, just keep writing nonfiction because I really enjoy it. Um, but as I'm sure we'll discuss, I, I made some different decisions along the way when it came to this story. Mm -hmm. um, I live in Colorado and um, I traveled over to the Netherlands probably about three times to do the research for this book. Um, and then, you know, here just tried to correspond with people in the Netherlands, uh, a lot of Google Translate, that kind of thing to yeah. help me, help me do it. I relied on the help of a lot of people who are all, I hope all of them are mentioned in the quite lengthy acknowledgements at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It takes a village to write an amazing book sometimes. <laughs> I think so. it takes a village to do anything, babe. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I have to ask because there, there is German throughout yeah. the book and I think there's a there's Dutch too right sure yeah um, both do you speak either of the languages or was it I, mostly translators yeah I do not speak German or Dutch and they are different languages mm -hmm. uh which the Dutch are very in it, it's important to the Dutch people you say that and I understand we you know that's fine um so I you know I relied on um, the help of some Dutch people, Dutch scholars who I know, um, to help me with the research. And then once the manuscript was complete, I had it proofread by somebody, by a Dutch woman, a uh, mm -hmm. Dutch historian who proofread it. And I just said, just will you please flag anything, whether it's mm -hmm. uh, the wrong word or the wrong use of a idiom or even just the descriptions of the place, if that seems weird, you know, please flag it. And certainly there were a lot of things she flagged and yeah. I was able to correct those. And then I also had it read by um, a woman who lives here, but who is from a German family and speaks fluent German. And so she read through it just to make sure all the German was correct. And, um, and she, you know, and definitely there were some things she fixed there too. So eternally grateful to those two amazing women because it, you know, it's very unnerving to write a book that is about a country that is not your own country. Yeah, uh, I'd never done that before, you know, so yeah, it was really um, intimidating. But I, I just thought I'm just going to ask for as much help as I need with this. And so far, I've gotten a really good response from Dutch folks who have read it. And I haven't heard from any Germans yet, but um, <laughs> hopefully they'll like it. It is coming out in Germany uh, next year. So I'm pretty excited about that. I know in like the UK and Australia and stuff, the book goes under a different title, right? Yes. The title there, I should have actually brought the book. It's called The Girl with the Red Hair, which if you read the book, you know that that was how uh, Adolf Hitler referred to her before they learned mm -hmm. Hani Schaff's name. And I honestly, I really like both titles and I wish... Yeah. I wish both books had the same title. I will just say that. But, you know, my UK publisher and my US publisher had very strong opinions on the title they wanted. And so, you know, ultimately, I just left it up to them. So that's that's why it's uh, different in both countries. OK, I, I saw that. And I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, no, if, thank if you. If we have it's listeners outside people. of the US, you'll see it under a different title. Yes, The Girl with the Red Hair, and it has a different cover, also a beautiful cover, just totally different. Just look up Buzzy Jackson. That's yeah. all you need to know. There's only one of me as far as I can, that name, as far as I can tell. <laughs> OK, I so th th this question is 100% not on our list, but I just have to ask. 
Buzzy, where does that yeah. name come from? Because I yeah. like, I'm like Buzzy Jackson sounds like a stunt girl reporter who's like, I'm going to expose corruption in the big city. Like it's, just, it's just like the best fucking name. Oh, thank you. I know. I have a friend who does roller derby, and she's like, you wouldn't even have to change your name for roller derby. You just be yourself. Um, I uh, my my legal name is Sarah Jackson, and uh, which I think is a beautiful name, Sarah. I have nothing mm-hmm. against that name. But um, when I was three days old, my Russian Jewish grandmother came to visit and see me, and she called me Buzhika, which uh, for a long time I thought we all thought was a Yiddish word, and it means like a little burr or a thistle that sticks to you, and it's a term of affection for a baby, Aww. and. My mom thought it was really cute and, but she, nobody could really pronounce it. I mean, I'm probably not even pronouncing it correctly. And so my mom immediately just shortened it to Buzzy. So I've been Buzzy since day three. Um, and I have gone through a few periods in my life when I thought, oh, maybe I'll go by Sarah, you know, sounds more professional or whatever. And then there's like 20 billion Sarah Jacksons in the world. So ultimately I let go of that idea. And um, I'm just, everybody knows me as buzzy. Everybody calls me buzzy. Yeah. So. Never let anyone harsh your buzz because that is <laughs> the best name in the world. Like Thank again, you. nothing against Sarah's except that one, Sarah, you know what you did, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no buzzy Jackson. I know her too. Fantastic. Yeah. We all know that Sarah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So you started, you kind of got the concept of this book in the winter of 2016, 17, when you went to visit, visit Amsterdam, like what brought you to Amsterdam? What was that? What was that experience like? Yeah. Um, well, if you recall the fall of 2016 was quite a, um, turbulent time in, uh, at least in the, the U S and, and even in Europe, um, you know, the Brexit vote had just happened, I think in September of that year which was pretty um, dispiriting to me. And then uh, Donald Trump was elected president and that was pretty shocking to a lot of people, including myself. And, um, and I was kind of in a, just a state of not really knowing what I wanted to do next. I was in between writing projects. I was feeling a little um, glum in general, but yeah. I had the very good fortune to, as you say, go to Amsterdam over the winter break. Um, and my uh, husband's family has some has some family who live there. They're Americans, they're not Dutch, but we have some Dutch friends there and stuff too. So we went to the Netherlands just to get out of town for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And um, while we were there, one of my friends there, who is actually an American scholar who lives there, she said, you know, you've been to all of the museums in Amsterdam, like there's like 75 of them. She said, uh, but have you been to the Museum of the Resistance? And I was like, no, what is that? And as you can imagine, it's a museum dedicated to the resistance movement of World War II and kind of more broadly about social justice issues. It's a really fantastic museum. Um, and it's right in the middle of Amsterdam. And so we went and this friend said, you know, there's this one uh, display there. I really want to show you. It's about this woman, Hani Shaft. You should write a book about her. She's amazing. And I was like, okay. You know, but I just, right. people <laughs> say that to you when you're a writer, you know what I mean? Like you should write a book about my aunt Betty. You know, it's like, okay, maybe, maybe not. But I went to the museum and um, I saw the little display she was talking about. And it was just small little display that had a photograph of 
what turned out to be Hani and Truce dressed up in their sort of costume, so to speak. Hani was sort of dressed up in like with a scarf around her hair and she looked cute. And Truce was dressed as a, as a boy or a man with like a cap on and stuff. And then there was a pair of glasses and a really beat up old pistol in the display. And all it said was, you know, Hani Shaft and Truce Overstein were members of the resistance and responsible for the deaths of, you know, X number of uh, Nazis and Nazi collaborators. And it just had this very brief bio. And I was like, you're right. This woman is incredible. Um, let's go buy what before we leave. I want to buy her the book about her. And we go to the um, bookstore and there was no book. And I thought, how can there not be a book about this incredible woman? Um, and so when I got back to the United States, I kept looking and discovered to my surprise that um, there have been some books about Hani and, and the Overstegen sisters uh, in Dutch in the la over the last like 40 years. But there hadn't, at the time, there hadn't been any written in the 21st century, even in Dutch, and there were definitely none in English. And so I, um, I thought, well, this is kind of crazy. It's, it's sort of what you dream about as a historian or as a writer is like finding a story that's so great that has not really been told in, you know, in a compelling way before. And, um, but I, I did think, well, if I do this, I'm just, I just assumed I'd write a biography of her, you yeah. know, a not a nonfiction book. That's my area anyway. So I thought I, I kind of know how to do this, do the research. I'll start doing it and see what I can come up with. And um, that's what I did. And I took another research trip over there um, to get more info and came back. And I, I felt like I was getting a good amount of information, but the only problem was that, um, you know, probably, you know, Anne Frank is somebody we all know when we think of the Dutch experience in World War II. Really, the reason we know anything about her is because of her incredible diary that she left. Mm -hmm. um, without that, she would just be another kind of somewhat anonymous victim of the Nazis. And Hani did not leave a diary behind. She did not leave. She never gave any interviews. She wasn't famous during her lifetime. I, she was a little infamous by yeah. then, but you know. <laughs> um, and uh, there are a few letters she wrote during the war, but not a ton. And it started to occur to me that, you know, if I wanted to actually have Hani's voice in this book, it was going to be pretty hard to do that. In fact, if I wanted any dialogue at all in the book, it, it was going to be almost impossible. And the thought of writing a whole biography with no dialogue in it seemed not the greatest idea. And that's when I started thinking about maybe writing it as a novel. It was actually my agent who first suggested it. And um, I thought about it and I was very, um, I was hesitant, you know, because for one, I had never published a novel. I, I will say I had written three novels that are in my, you know, somewhere in the cloud up there that will never be seen by anybody. They're they were, they like, were test think, novels. Exactly. <laughs> I think of them as practice novels. Mm -hmm. um, so I felt like, well, I've, I have tried this before, you know, I can try it for a fourth time. Um, and excuse me. Um, and so, 
but I also was daunted because, you know, these are real people I would be writing about. And so the responsibility of trying to, you know, do justice to the real lives of actual human beings who went through something so awful um, was intimidating. Um, but, you know, the thing that I do when I think about writing any book is the one of the first things I do is I usually look around for books on my bookshelf or in the bookstore that uh, could be a model for what my the book is that I'm thinking about, mm-hmm. um, whatever kind of book it is. And so for this one, I thought, okay, what are some other books that have been written about true stories, but they're fictionalized? And the most obvious one was Schindler's List, mm-hmm. um, which is, of course, a book about Oscar Schindler, who is a real person, and all of the Jews that he helped save. And I think many of us, including myself, uh, think of it as a nonfiction book, but in fact, it's a novel. He And he has a really interesting author's note at the beginning where he talked about um, his own in his own intimidation about writing it as a novel and his own process of getting to this point it was very incredibly helpful <laughs> to me because it showed me that like all of the same worries that i had he also had and yet ultimately decided to do it as fiction for the same reasons i was thinking about it which is basically i really wanted people to know about these incredible women and i really wanted it to be accessible to as wide a readership as possible. And all of that just means I wanted it to be a a very readable book, you know, a book that was fun to read, maybe not, might not be the word, but like, you know, compelling to read. And, um, and so that the Schindler's List model, you know, although daunting to compare myself (laughs) to writing Schindler's List, um, it still made me realize, you know, it's okay to do this. Like it kind of gave me permission in a way. And so that's, that's the very long answer to your question of, you know, how I found out about her and started writing about her. (laughs) Well, and I'm sure with a book like this, when some relatives and descendants of some of the characters in the book are still alive yeah like there's that extra level of like oh do I want like if I Mm -hmm. screw this up like Mm -hmm. I'm sure like there's that yeah like that like mm, people are gonna like some people are gonna know at least parts of it right like even yeah I wrote a story on my mom and like an experience that she had in the 70s in the workforce and yeah I don't think I've ever been so stressed out to have someone read something I wrote then when I was yeah. asking my mom to read this, the the piece I wrote on her, because oh, every time sure. I wrote something, I was like, oh, God, what is she going to think of this? <laughs> like, like, yeah. there, there are things I'm like, I can never write about this until my parents are dead because they like I, I just I can't be thinking like, what are they going to think when they read this? Yes, of course. How do you like, do I do mean, this podcast then? <laughs> because my parents don't know how podcasts work. <laughs> That's right. They, they, they frequently ask, so like, how do I listen to your podcast? And I'm like, you just get on Spotify and Internet <laughs> firewall. Don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I hear you. I, you know. It that was very, very sort of scary to me, you know, because um, I did want to contact, of course, anyone I could who was either related to these people or, you know, or just had a wartime experience. And um, I one of the first things I did was I tried to track down uh, Feline, 
Polak, mm-hmm. who was is one of the characters in the book. She's one of Hani's Jewish friends who Hani hides in her parents' house. And I knew that Feline had immigrated to the United States after yeah. the war. Spoiler. I guess we should make a spoiler alert. Should we make a spoiler alert for this podcast? Maybe. I mean, people we'll, we'll probably put it know. in the description. Okay. I, I, I will, will say... be discussing the book. And I mean, yeah. they know how Hanny's story ends if they've listened to our previous episode, at least. I mean, One, it's you, history. Yeah. Two, if we're going to talk about this book for an hour, yeah. like... And you're Spoiler. and you're like, I'm gonna listen to this interview about this book and they're not gonna spoil anything. Well, then yeah. you deserve this. Yeah. You deserve yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I also, you know, it's it's such a tricky question because it's like if you just Google Honey Shaft, you immediately kind of know uh spoiler, she did not live past the end of the World War II. Right. Um but uh, Feline did. And so I so I thought, well, I'm going to try and see whatever happened to Feline. And um, I was able to track her down um, to sort of the greater Washington, D.C. area. And uh, long story short, I got in touch with her daughter because Feline by this time was in her 90s. Yeah. And oh um, she was still alive, I discovered. And I got in touch with her daughter through email. And her, her daughter was pretty receptive, but also said, you know, she's not in great health. We're moving her to another sort of care facility right yeah. now. We'll see how she's doing. And um, it's funny. I am in a writing group here with a lot, a group of really talented women writers, a lot of whom have like reporting and journalism experience, which I don't. And so when I told them this, they all were like, well, fly out there and go interview her. And I was like, Geez, I don't know if I can just, you know, bum rush the senior home. Right. (laughs) Right. Seems a little disrespectful, maybe. Talk to me. Yeah. Um, Do you know how many forms you have to sign to visit someone in a care facility? You have to promise your firstborn child. You have to give them your social. Yeah. That's a really, I hadn't even thought of that. So, and I also, you know, I had been in touch with her daughter and out of respect too for her daughter and to, you know, hopefully preserve that relationship. I thought I can't just barge in there, you know? So I, you know, I did not talk to Feline, but I, her daughter was really helpful and said, you know, she's done like 16 hours of oral history interviews for the Shoah Foundation. And she's done. So she basically helped me find a bunch of primary, primary sort of documents related to Feline's life, um, letters and different things she had written and stories she had even told her children. Although she didn't talk about the war a lot with them, which is not that uncommon, you know, with people who go through something like this. Um, And so while I did not ultimately get to talk to Feline. She did pass away not too long after I first made contact with her daughter. She she really was in quite poor health at that point. Yeah. So I don't think I really would have been able to talk to her anyway. But um, her daughter really helped me connect with some people in the Netherlands who were extremely helpful for my research. So through various, you know, sort of a friend <laughs> roundabout a friend. ways. Yeah. I, the next time I went to the Netherlands, I was able to meet the daughter of Truce, uh, Truce Overstegen. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. That's huge. So it was huge. Yeah. And I was very nervous to meet with her, but she is a really lovely, super just down to earth, funny, nice woman. And, um, who was very happy to talk to me. I mean, she's clearly talked to like interviewers and people before because her mom led a very 
activist and public life after the war, you know. Uh, And her mother and also Freddie had passed away just very recently. Um, So there had been a lot of obituaries and stuff written about them. Anyway, she was, I'm happy to say, very, um, she was glad that I was working on this book. She kind of implied that people had contacted her before and like, maybe nothing would come of this, you know, which is fair, you know, I, it's, it's hard to get a book published. Um, but, uh, but she gave me like family photos to look at. She told me like stories and stuff, you know, her older sister is named after Hani. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yeah. I bet you covered yeah. that. I bet you said that in yours. Yeah, I think so. When you covered this, I'm probably having the same Oh my God, I'm not crying, you're crying reaction. It's pretty, it's pretty heartbreaking because she was, baby Hani was born like two years after the war ended, you know? Um, And so I did tell uh, Teresa's daughter um, at some point when, once I made the decision, I said, you know, I do want you to know that I'm planning on writing this as a novel. Like I, I really am not planning to change the facts of the story but I do feel like I need to try to bring it alive that way right and she just laughed and she goes well I would hope that you'd write as a novel because otherwise who would read it and I was like okay great that's great you know I'm like I'm taking this as permission let me record you saying that I'm gonna put it on my website and every time I get an email (laughs) I'm gonna send them the voice clip that's right. And I told, of course, I told Feline's daughter too, and she was also okay with it. And I'm very happy and humbled to say that they have both read the book. Also, Feline's wow. other kids have read it and mm-hmm. they are really happy with it and gave it their blessing. So I, that was just a whew, very big relief for me. Um, yeah. I think they're really happy, you know, that their, their mother's stories are getting out there to a broader audience, hopefully. So that's my whole goal with the book. So yeah. first of all, I want to congratulate you because your your book can officially have the title No Elderly Holocaust Survivors Were Harmed in the <laughs> yeah, Making right. of This yeah, Novel. Right. I did not bum like, rush. Thank you a. for not <laughs> right. just busting into the care home. Because I'm thinking too, like that's that's got to be very traumatizing and to have, you yeah. know, strangers coming up to you and be like, so tell me about like the most traumatizing period of your life. <laughs> exactly. Just tell me about that. Exactly. You know, I mean, yeah, there's a reason that a lot of these people never talked about their experiences because it was just so painful. And you're right. To be confronted with that at the end of your life would probably not be the most fun thing, you know? Yeah. When you're in your 90s, you just kind of want to like coast on out of there. (laughs) Absolutely. Donuts, milkshakes, just soft food. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sounds good to me. Live in your best. Vitamins on demand. That's right. That's right. (laughs) But that that's That's so that's so wonderful that their daughters are kind of taking up the mantle of telling these stories because they are very important stories. And you talking about how it was 2016 and there was a lot of a lot of upsetting stuff yeah. going on. And mm-hmm. the the fact that you then went to the Museum of Resistance and the topic of resistance and like the uh, the most appropriate or the most effective a way to resist, you know, injustice. And like that's been such a such a hot topic. Yeah. And yeah. just I don't know the the kismet of that timing is really wonderful. It is. It is and honestly even just going to the museum at that time was really restorative for me of like oh god look at these all of these stories of courageous people who 
just were like, this is bullshit. We're not standing for it. You know, it was very inspiring. Even if I hadn't read the book, I, I, I recommend everybody go to the museum of resistance. It's a really, really cool place. And I'm thrilled to say that, um, my book is now on sale in their bookstore. Yay! <laughs> That's awesome. Full circle. Right. Yeah. You're like, now people can go there, see the plaque about Hani, and then yes. go buy a book about her. You fix That's the right. problem. You're like, yeah, mm, there should you know, be a book here. I'm going to yeah. write it. <laughs> yes. So that, I just found that out a couple of days ago. It's incredibly gratifying and exciting. So um, That's that is really nice to hear. Yeah. That's so incredible. I love yeah. that. So I, I have a comment and then I have our next question. But my comment sure. is, as you were talking about, like, spoilers about who survived and who did not survive the war. Mm. I want to say I am absolutely thankful and absolutely love that at the end of the book, you do talk about, like, each of the individual players. And you're like, this is what happened. Because, yeah, like, in the novel itself, all of those plot lines are not necessarily revolved. So I absolutely love that you were like, hey, let me follow up with some true information about where everyone ended up. And I, I just loved that. Good. Good. Yeah, that was important to me because I think there's a lot of historical fiction that is based on true stories. And sometimes it's just loosely inspired. Mm -hmm. But even so, as a reader myself, I always feel like I don't care if it's exactly the same, but just please tell me like what parts were the same and what were different, you know. And so it was always in my plan to include that in the end of the book. I appreciate that. I'm really glad you read it and people are reading it because it's um I think it's satisfying to find out you know what I mean I agree because like especially since some people just kind of like disappeared that was a that was a big thing when the Nazis took over countries people just disappeared so like being able to have kind of that closure and know like the finality of like hey yes they did survive and this is what happened or no they didn't and that's heartbreaking yes exactly exactly plus it also just brings it home of the reality of these lives, you know, I think it's just like, these really were real people. Here's what we know about them, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Thanks for asking about that. I, that was one of the most satisfying parts to write in some ways, because there's also a few like, you know, glimmers of hope in that part too, because not everybody died, you know, a lot of people went on to great things. So that was really important for me to tell that part too. Right. Have you ever, Kelly, I know you have, but uh, Buzzy, have you ever been to that Titanic exhibit that that travels around where you get the the ticket of the person? Oh and yes, you, you I have. Sometimes you die. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. But yeah, I, I love it's, that it's because true. it's like these are real people's names, and you don't get to know a lot about them as a person. Mm-hmm. But it it kind of connects you to like yeah. this was a real person who did experience this event. Yeah, and they may or may not have made it. Yeah, yeah, and you know this this is less than a hundred years ago that this happened, you know? So it's really, um, as a historian, you know, I, it's always been something I try to keep in the front of my mind as I'm writing anything about history, which is just that, you know, at least this is my belief and philosophy is that people, human beings, whether it's 5,000 years ago or five years ago are essentially the same. Mm-hmm. We're still the same people and nothing in our physiology or brain has really developed any differently. It's just different living conditions. And yep. so I I always tried to keep that in mind when writing about people in the past, especially like, you know, in a book like this, where when I was writing about these women during the war, you know, and under this, these extreme situations, uh, I, I did, I had a little post-it note up just reminding me that 
none of these people knew when the war was going to end. You know, right. we know because we have Wikipedia, but, but they didn't know. And so in 1944, you know, they could have, they, it could have been 10 more years. It could right. have been two more months. Like they did really did not know. And that mm-hmm. is such a horrible place to be in. It's such an insecure feeling. So I tried to keep that in mind as much as possible. I think you did a really good job of bringing that to the book, Thanks. like just through various conversations people were having or like good. particularly toward the end when mm-hmm. Hani was in prison and she, yeah. you know, you talked about like her thoughts around it. Cause I'm like, yeah, that's how it had to feel. Like the allies are so close. They're so close. But yeah. Like when are they actually going to get here? Yeah. And, you know, I will say in, you know, in late 1944, early 1945, most Europe, most people knew that Germany was losing and things were probably winding down, but like how soon that would happen and how horrible the wind down would be. Of course, right. nobody knew that. Yeah. So, it's how many yeah. people are they taking with them when they go? Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to, or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank goodness. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash herstory. Um, okay, so you mentioned when you went to the museum, you saw a picture of Hani and Truce. At any point during writing Hani's story, did you ever think about writing, either switching over the focus to Truce and Freddy or even Jan or Heinrich or like Mm. any of the other characters? There's so many really interesting characters in this book or like from the beginning where you like, no, it's Hani and that's that's who I'm writing about. It's a really good question because I agree with you that each of those people you named deserves their own book. I will say that Heinrich is a composite character of a few people. He's one of the few people who are characters who's not one real person, but he's based on a man named Franz Vanderveel, who was actually the leader of the RVV, but he was... Whatever, I won't go into it, but for various reasons, I decided to make him sort of a composite of a few different resistance folks. Um, One of the people I spoke with, actually, while I was doing the research, was a Dutch guy um, who is writing the biography of Jan Bonacamp. 
And nice. so that was exciting because not only was this guy, I met him at Jan's grave. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Like, and he really helped intentionally me. Intentionally or like <laughs> accidentally? Intentionally. Okay. In- intentionally. <laughs> was, like, was it one of those things like, that you were visiting the grave and he just happened to be there? Because that would be crazy. I mean, these things happen. But well, no, in the novelization time, of yeah. Buzzy's story, that's exactly <laughs> what that's happens. Right. That's right. In the TV movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. So no, through some other friends, I was able to make contact with this guy and he, it was his idea to meet at Jan's grave. And we met there, which was incredible. And he gave me a lot of info, but so I thought, okay, Jan is covered. Like somebody's doing Jan. Yeah. And then uh, Truce actually has a really wonderful memoir that she wrote that is hopefully get, it's been translated into English once. And I managed to find one of the very few copies in the world. I'm I'm kind of exaggerating, but it was not easy to find. I'm hoping they're going to republish it. Um, so I of course relied on her memoir yeah. a lot in writing the book, but also I felt she has this book in her own words. And Freddie after the war was um probably the most private of all of the survivors you yeah know? i remember and, when i did the episode that that's what they yeah. kind of talked about like that truce was still like out there telling her story and freddie was kind of just like i'm gonna i'm gonna step back <laughs> yeah exactly and you know i think that could have been because i mean freddie was 14 when she joined the resistance yeah. like just to go through that as such a young girl I, I'm just speculating, but yeah, I think it was hard. So I, I didn't really feel like it was something that Freddie would have maybe even wanted. Yeah. Um, and by telling Hani's story, I felt I could really tell all of a part of all of their yeah. stories in a way. But I'd, certainly they're all deserving of their own many books and films about them. They're just incredible. Yeah, they are. I also tried to look it up. Uh, yeah, Truce's memoir is definitely not audible uh, oh, yeah no i volunteer as tribute to read that i will learn how to do a dutch accent oh, <laughs> I'll dedicate I my life to it yeah yeah it's a really it's a fascinating book and it's great and it's not just about her wartime experience but also her work you know in the anti-apartheid movement in south africa all mm-hmm. sorts of, you guys probably covered that so anyway it's uh she's a very inspiring person obviously I, I, all I think of is like how exhausting that would be, you know, like as a young woman, you and your sister and your friends are like killing Nazis yep. and then the war well, ends and watching people like and watching people you care about die and, you know, and disappear and you yep. never know what happens to them. But then it's like the war ends and you're like, okay, finally we can get back to normal. But it's like, no, because all this other bullshit is happening and I right. just yeah. cannot turn this off like it's just it's exhausting (laughs) I know I mean it's incredible the energy that somebody like Truce you know and I should say Freddie was involved with the Hani Shaft Foundation her whole life it's not that she was never involved in any of these things she always supported all of Truce's work as well um but you know they also weren't really celebrated as heroes after the war necessarily or they weren't disparaged but because of the communist ties uh to the to their um resistance cell the cold war made their whole affiliation with that kind of tamped it down (laughs) problematic yeah for the dutch government um i mean really unnecessarily it's it's silly because none of those women were particularly ideological or anything but um in a way maybe that was good that they could kind of just have a more normal life afterwards and just do their thing you know could be yeah 
So you obviously did a lot of research on this. You were able to speak to the the children and relatives of the people that you're talking about in this book. What surprised you most when writing this story? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things it might be obvious, but like it was probably most surprising that just I hadn't heard of Hani and Truce and Freddie before and that um, it seems like nobody outside of the Netherlands had, you know, and that was just so uh, shocking to me because, uh, I mean, as we all know, there's been approximately 2 million books written about World War II uh, already. And it's, you know, the idea that their story wouldn't have been told yet was so baffling to me. It, you know, it turned out to be fortuitous in my case because yeah. gave me the opportunity <laughs> to do it. Um but uh, there was that. And then I think also probably the most surprising thing was, and one of the reasons I think it Hani makes a great central character for this story is that, um, you know, Truce and Freddie came from a very socially active family. Her, mm-hmm. Their mom was just a total badass social justice ad- yeah. activist yeah, um, long before they were even born. Um, but Hani's family really was like a much more kind of middle-class bourgeois family. Um, I mean, I, I say that with respect, they were, her family was amazing, but they weren't, she never was a firebrand or sort of a rebel in any sense of the word. Um, she was very much just a kind of a bookworm, you know? And right. so, you know, this, obviously this becomes kind of the central arc of the book is like, how does she change from this? shy sort of nerdy girl into this badass assassin and to me that was also the mystery of the book and of her story was like how did that happen and you know obviously I had to imagine a lot of that because she did not write down exactly her thought process going through it but um you know I think Watching her do that and hearing the way her friends talked about Hani's journey, which is, of course, mostly how I how I got information about Mm it. um, It was really it was just incredibly inspiring to me, you know, that that she was just a pretty normal person who did some pretty extraordinary things. And I think it I think it really shows that a lot of us, maybe all of us, maybe most of us have within us the capacity for extraordinary action under, you know, the, the right circumstances. So that in itself, I think was just surprising how much, how much a person can change if they have the courage to do so. Those are I feel like those are some of our favorite stories when we when we talk about World War II or, you know, any serious conflict is some of the people we cover. It's like they were as average as you could imagine. Yeah. And then they did all of these incredible things because they were pushed back to being average. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's 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 really inspiring, too, because. It really, it really highlights the point that the people who were experiencing these truly incredible and horrific events yeah. were so normal. Exactly. Like, like even yeah. the people committing the atrocities were so normal. And I think right. that's something that we forget. Like yeah. we either like to, um, you know, canonize someone or we, you know, want to demonize. Someone. And don't get me wrong. Some of these people were just 
soups fucked. Yeah. Like there's something. Yeah, there, there's, there are certain people that like, are just like, you were a monster. Fix yourself. Sure. But for From the most birth, part, yeah. most of these people yeah. were so normal. Yeah. And the idea that we all have that capacity to either do the right thing or the wrong thing mm-hmm. is very grounding and inspiring. Yeah. It's good to know, you know, it's yeah. good to kind of keep in the back of your head that, that that's true. And I mean, for me, one of the most inspiring things, uh, you know, just in terms of American history, which was really my focus as a grad mm-hmm. student, was always the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s. And, you know, that was almost entirely comprised of just like totally, you know, quote unquote, normal people, whether it was college students taking buses down to the South or just like people living in Mississippi, standing up for their own rights, you know, people like Fannie Lou Hamer and other incredible activists. So I think this is another story like that. And those are, they're good stories to, to keep alive, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially like, the stories that no one knows yeah. of these ordinary people. Like, cause sometimes the, the ordinary people do get a little more media depending on like what they do, but yeah. like, yeah, to like really find these gems of like people that just fought so hard and did so many amazing things. And then no one talks about them or, you know, yeah. to bring them up for every Anne Frank. There right. are a thousand other Anne Franks that we're, we're probably never going to know their story. Exactly. And so it's that really exactly. good representation of like, you know, Anne Frank's story is is her story, but it's also the story of so many other mm-hmm. young people who had everything ahead of them. It was it was snatched away in the Absolutely. worst way imaginable. Fucking Nazis. Fucking Nazis. God. The fucking Nazis. I know. You know, it's funny. Before the book came out, I was talking to my editor at Dutton and, you know, the world we live in today with like. Uh, books coming out that get like immediately critiqued for, I don't know, representing something the wrong way or whatever. Um, I was like, listen, I'm, I'm afraid of this as, as an author, like, can we please proofread this book to make sure I didn't make any like obvious dumb errors or just use the wrong word. And my editor was like, we're talking about fucking Nazis. Like, right, like who's okay. going to be mad? Like the people who are going to be yeah. mad about it can be mad exactly. about it. It's like, exactly. If you're mad about the way that Nazis are portrayed in this novel, maybe yeah. that says something more about you. Right, that's a yeah, you problem. Exactly. That seems was- like a red flag in your character. <laughs> Fix yourself. Completely. It was funny. And I thought, okay, good. I just want to make sure, you know, because yeah, let's, they were the worst. So let's just <laughs> like make sure that that's, and, you know, I really wanted the Nazis come across. I think there's a lot of brutality, obviously, in this book. And there's a lot of darkness in this book. But these people were fucking dark, you right. know, and they're the worst. So I did not want to. I definitely took out real events that happened that were equally dark just because, number one, the book's already pretty long and it, it was longer before before it was edited. So I could not include everything. But also there were just some things that was like, you know what? I think we've seen enough atrocities in this chapter right. that it's gonna it's gonna numb the reader if we read too many more of these, you know. So uh, I tried to be judicious in the ones that I included. I really want to read your pre-edited. I was novel, gonna say, can though? we get the author's <laughs> cut? Um... The, the four-hour author's yeah, edition. I would, I would read <laughs> yeah. that. With new, never-before-seen pages. I'm not even joking. I read your book in, like, two days. Oh, so, like, 
I so would sweet. I would probably read an even longer one oh, just because well, it's I, great. I will say, excitingly, and who knows, but um, this book has been optioned for film slash TV. <gasps> Shut up! No, it's true, but... <laughs> Almost every book has been optioned for film and TV and most of them never make it to right. screen. So that's like kind of, you have to keep that in, as the author, you have to always keep that in mind. But I will say that I talked to the producers um, about it, you know, and about their plans for it before I went ahead and, you know, went with right. them. And I mentioned to them, I was like, listen, I have like tons of other scenes and other material that is that is real, that is historical stuff that happened that did not make it into the book. So if you're interested and they were like, oh, we would love to, you know, like there we get more content, you know, so um, we'll see if that actually, if that actually happens, then maybe you'll see some of those deleted scenes in the film version. Then then we get to say like, well, we knew Buzzy Jackson when. That's right. That's right. I'll come back on and we can discuss the film. There you go. Well, and I, I don't think there's ever a bad time to tell a story about Nazis sucking, especially yeah. now when it's like, there are good people on both right. sides. Are oh, there God. though? I know. Like, well, like there's true. so much of this apology and like, even, even you see it, you know, out and about the, the white supremacist, the Nazi, like the hateful bumper oh, yeah. stickers, lawn decorations, right. like, con, like, terrible. like all this Ugh. stuff. And it's like, I remember learning about World War II and Nazis when I was a little kid. Like I read a bunch of books and I learned about it in school and I never thought I would get to my thirties and yeah. Nazis would be a relevant thing that we're talking about. And right. you know, they come in so many different yeah. brands now. Of course. You know? Yeah. yeah. No, it's, like I just it's learned true. about the Aryan cowboys. And oh I'm yeah. Like, That's what the, thing. the oh, fuck is this God. shit? Are you kidding me? Oh my God. It's, it's so pathetic. Yeah, it's like, okay, get yourself a marketing person because you are terrible. <laughs> I I feel exactly the same way you do. You know, I felt like, I thought this was a settled thing. Nazis right? are bad, right? Like, they, we all know they're bad. We fought an entire fucking war against them. You know right. what I mean? And, uh, but no, um, uh, not everybody learned that lesson well enough. So we're going to have to teach them again. That's fine. We'll do right. that. Like yeah. some people just did not get that memo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we got to write some new memos. What is sure. email? Right. They didn't get that one. That's right. So I'm going to skip a question and Emily, you can go back to it. But because we were talking about parts, you edited it out. And that was one of my questions. Yeah. But I'm not going to make you go through every part you edited out. But what I was- am though. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's after we're done recording. Yeah. yeah. Right. We can just um, talk offline about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what was maybe like one of the harder parts you had to edit out or like something that you were like, you kind of waffled on where you're like, should I leave it in? Should I not? Like, right. Um, one of the, I mean, I'm almost hesitant to say this because I think it was really hard for me to cut, but, um, one chapter that I cut from the book was something that really happened, which was that at a certain point during the war, um, you know, I write about how these, these resistors, just got burnt out, of course, from yeah. doing this work and occasionally just had to take breaks to just, you know, mental health breaks. And at one point, um, Hani and Jan took a mental health break together to a little beautiful little farm outside of Harlem. And I wrote this whole chapter about this basically like 
almost like a honeymoon that they had there a lot. And a lot of that was imagined because I, I, I know it really happened. I don't know exactly. Like once they got there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I tried to leave some of that kind of vague, but it was a, such a, I love that chapter because it was a little bit of a break from the, just the horrors of the, all the other stuff. And, um, you know, and it was a moment to really highlight um, this like, really beautiful part of Hani's life I mean she was as far as I know Jan was the her first love and her only love like her only boyfriend she ever had you know and so I really loved the idea of giving her this chapter of just like bliss you know but ultimately it had to be cut so um I can send that to you separately yeah I would love to read it (laughs) well then it's kind of uh when all this is over you know it's kind of almost this this preview of you know what their lives could have been like yeah you know yeah yeah, if she survived and and all of that and also paint you know representing them as real people and also can I just say that is the most validating thing to hear that people who are fighting literal Nazis also had to take mental health breaks they're like (laughs) I I just I need I need a day or a week like yeah that's that's so true like lives are on the line but you you can't help anyone if you're not okay definitely no I mean just imagine how stressful it would be to live under those circumstances every day and I think, you know, they, they really did try to take some breaks when they could um, just, yeah, just so they could for the, to make it sustainable. You yeah. Know? Right. Oh my yeah. God. That, that yeah. really breaks my heart, you know, I know. like <laughs> imagining them, they're on this like little vacay, you know, that like they're, know. they're just getting away from the chaos. So we, we just covered the story of Felice and Lily uh-huh. and they were uh, two women in love in Germany, one of whom was married to a Nazi soldier, the other of whom was a Jewish woman, like in open hiding. Uh-huh. And right before everything comes crashing down, they take this little vacation to this lake and there are all these photos of them just so happy in this beautiful scenery and just yeah. looking so normal. Like, right. like you would never imagine the right. you know the horror that's going on around them and it's right. like this is how it should have ended this is what it could have been i know but motherfucking nazis right. motherfucking nazis i mean it's you know th- and that's the thing is like what these people wanted was just what we all want it's not it's not huge things to ask for it's just like a beautiful day of peaceful picnicking with the person you love you know right. like that shouldn't be too much to ask, but, um, you know, that's why to me like that true, you know, that phrase stay human that I use in the book, mm-hmm. it was so powerful because I think, and that came from Truce and Freddie's mom, you know, who yeah. had been doing this work for a long time and knew that it can really grind you down and you have to actively maintain your humanity however you can, you know, by taking breaks or just by, you know, taking moments with your your colleagues to like remind yourselves of you know that beautiful things still exist in the world those those little pleasures like you write about like even though they're drinking hot water because there isn't hot chocolate and stuff but they're talking about it like it is hot chocolate and they're like oh like give me more whipped cream and all this stuff like and taking those moments that even though you Mm. know it's not real you're still Mm -hmm. letting yourself enjoy what the future may hold 
Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's really little moments of joy can still happen even in those terrible circumstances. And I think, you know, I tried to portray Jan just based on what I learned about Jan as, you know, like everyone, he has his strengths and his flaws, but I think one of his strengths was that he was, he was a really great hang. You know what I mean? Like he was fun. He was flirty. He was hot, you know, and he tried to even turn a lot of their little missions into kind of adventures that were exciting and and fun and romantic in a way. And so I think that kind of, um, I mean, what a, what a blessing to have a person like that around in those circumstances, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like a ray of sunshine of like, yeah. I think you even describe him as that in the book at one point that you're just like, he's just that like fun person, even when the world is shitty and there's Nazis everywhere. (laughs) Well, so yeah, someone who can guide you into an alternative mentality or even give you permission to like, exactly. You can have some fun with this. Like I know we're killing Nazis, but like, let's have fun with it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you know, if you're living that close to death at all times, I'm sure it gives you some feeling of like, fuck it. Let's just go for it. You know right. what I mean? Like we're going to die anyways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, if you do ever look up the photo of Jan, I mean, he was so cute in those golden curls and the whole thing. I mean, he just has a twinkle in his eye. You know, I thought, well, at least Hani got to be in love with somebody really foxy. Right. Know? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> she deserved it. She deserved someone foxy. Uh-huh, <laughs> She's the fiery 100%. redhead and he's yeah. the foxy blonde guy. Oh my God. Exactly. I ship it so hard. <laughs> Wait totally. for the fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I would love that so much. Oh, oh geez. God. I would love that. Yeah. So yeah, we, we've talked a lot about, you know, Nazis and how we're all like, wow, I can't believe this is something we're still talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, what what was that like to write about these, like, historical baddies? I, I mean, like, they're, they're kind of like the ultimate historical baddies when everyone's like, oh, fucking not, you know, it's always Nazis yeah. that they reference. So right. what was, what was um, the hardest thing about writing the book besides the Nazis? <laughs> and yeah. the difficulty of finding, like, the research. Yeah. You know, I, um, I was fortunate to, through Feline's daughter, to make contact with a woman, a Dutch woman uh, who lives in Harlem, who, um, who didn't know Hani, and she was a child during the war, she and her husband, but they, she's very involved with the Hani Schacht Foundation. And so this woman, uh, Greet Plecker, who I do thank mm-hmm. in the end of the book, um, she and her husband, Luke, took me, they met me at the train one day when I was over there and they really told me a lot about the history of the place, about, they had like um, artifacts of their own experience during the war, like ration cards and different sort of, yeah, I think, and some of these are on my website. If you want to look on the website, I have, um, I have like a little photo collage of some of these little items. Um, And so she really helped me with some of that, just like showing me the actual places where many of these attacks occurred. Um, And she took me to Hani's grave, which is not far from where she was actually shot. Oh my Um, God. And we we saw that. I mean, we don't know exactly where she was killed, but you can imagine it. It's pretty, you know. Um, And then I I was fortunate to have some friends who are um, scholars, historians and that kind of thing in the Netherlands who helped me um, in the archives. So 
I went to, um, in Amsterdam, there's a place called uh, the Institute of Genocide, really fun place. Wow. And, um, <laughs> Great time. Great yeah, time. <laughs> yeah. And they, but they have this incredible archive of, you know, stuff from most, not just from World War II, but from a lot of international genocides. Um, and I went to the archives in The Hague, the National Archives. Wow. And with a Dutch friend of mine who could help me, you know, understand what I was looking at. And, you know, one time, one, one of the folders we opened while we were there, we opened it up and mostly it's like interviews with people or paper, newspaper clippings. And we opened this one file and this thing fell out of it. I picked it up and it was a Nazi passport from one of the Nazis, you know, involved with this whole, wow. like, administering the Netherlands during that time. And just to hold this passport, it looks exactly like passports do today. It was like navy blue, except it had a giant swastika on yeah, the front of it. Naturally. Yeah. They're all about it, their branding. Yeah, yeah. They have great branding. Um you open it up and it look, you know, there's a little black and white photo of this young man. There's a list of all his vaccinations that he got. Wow. There's like stamps of these different, you know, it was so chilling to hold it in your hand and yeah. just think like this used to be in this guy's pocket. Um, and he was just a normal guy who got vaccinations, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just, it's even as a historian moments like that, just kind of really bring it home for you. You know what I mean? So it was anyway, it was a real mix of like archival research plus talking to people um, and just obviously trying to read a lot of books that were other people's memoirs of mm -hmm. the hunger winter of the war in general. There's actually a lot of really excellent, um, you know, memoirs of the, of world war two yeah. from, from the Dutch. So I would recommend to anybody, you know, checking those out too. Those, those personal items, like when you were first describing in the uh, Museum of Resistance, the glasses, those yeah. personal items where it's like you see them all the time, you can imagine someone handling them. Yeah. And it, it's almost like you can almost see this item in action. Right. Mm -hmm. And it almost feels like it, it, it's hard it's to surreal. describe. But yeah, it is surreal right. because there's almost like you, it's like you can almost see it with yeah. that real person. You know, Absolutely. you're like so close to just being able to like see that person. And so Absolutely. a personal item, like a passport that we all, you know, we have passports. We're familiar with them. Yeah. And that yeah. this guy was going around not seeing it up with not this thing in his pocket. <laughs> like yeah, exactly. the stories that passport could tell. Uh, but then also how normal it, like, it's just such an average thing that has yeah. this really dark association with it right like it's, anyone yeah. can have it but no of it's course. an Nazi one I I do have some photos on my website of some of Hani's jewelry that survived and seeing that is a similar thing because even just like bracelets I I remember whole, I didn't get to touch it but it was in a in a museum not the resistance museum it was it was in the museum of Harlem I'm not sure if it's there now and just, I remember holding my own wrist up to it, yeah. just to see, like how big was her, you know, it seemed like it was about the same size as mine. And they were like adorable, beautiful little pins. The little bird pin that I sort of start the book with yeah. is based on her real pin, that it, like a brooch that she had. And they're just like cute little, we would think of them now as you'd find them in a vintage store or something. I'm you like, know? I have those pins. Yeah, I, exactly. I went through a big yeah. cameo phase. <laughs> nice. Yeah. 
it's in that it's in that vein for sure. They're really sweet little items, but yeah, they're so human. You know, it's yeah. it's it's really uh, heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Well, now I'm depressed. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, like seriously, the 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 story. It's so inspiring, and you, okay. and I mean, you're 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 writing this as a novel, but you yeah. can't change the ending, right? You know, yeah. and I. I, I, I think I would really struggle with that. Like, do I really have to end it this way? Can I just I like know. skip around that or, but I, it, I mean, it's an incredible story and the, you know, the references you've made to like, well, no one's going to read it if it's not a novel. Like <laughs> people have gotten so turned off with historical literature because it's like, in the winter of 1812, the crops <laughs> yeah, were like, coming in. Like, no, 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 yeah. no. like it's so Boring. Well, like you said, if there was no dialogue, like, right. yeah. how would that even read? <laughs> like, right. It, it, right. Would, it would just be the reporting of, of facts, and, it, and that's yeah. not engaging. And it's kind of like sometimes the fictionalized versions mm-hmm. of a story become our reality. Yeah. You know, people, yeah. people probably take things in Schindler's List more as reality than... Like oh, yeah. the parts that maybe they, you know, they, they use artistic license. Like I love those listicles where it's like yeah. 10 historical inaccuracies in your favorite World War II movie. Cause <laughs> right. it's fun for me. Right. I'm never going to judge sure. it. Um, sure. Yeah. And sometimes it's like genuinely interesting where they're oh, like, yeah. oh, this thing was wrong. And you're like, huh. Yeah. Like, but I never thought happen. about that. But really I mean, this is what gets people engaged in the story and gets it out there. And that is so important. I, yeah, I hope so. I think so. And, you know, one thing I realized as I was going through that whole process of fictionalizing it or not, is that it, this is actually something we do all the time in movies and nobody thinks twice about it. Like, like the movie Lincoln, the Spielberg movie. Now that's based obviously on real history. And I'm sure a lot of the dialogue is even the real dialogue, but not every single shred of that movie can be proved by a historian. And yet, it's fine. We accept that like, okay, this is a lightly fictionalized version of how, you know, how Lincoln got the Emancipation Proclamation through or whatever. And yet in books, and for good reason, you know, we still want to know what's true and what's not. But um, I'm working on a new book now that a new novel that is also based on a historical event, um, but it's set in the United States. So it's a little easier to research. But I do feel like this is, gave me a real, it was such a great experience writing this book. And it's like, now I feel like, oh, I think I know how to do this now a little bit, you know? So it's really fun. Well, we'll look forward to your next book then. So first of all, when you said Lincoln, I was like, yeah, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. That's the first movie I thought of Loosely based on real events. You know, you can say. what's, What's fun about that movie and the book, though, is that how yeah. these absurd supernatural elements fit into what actually happened right. in history. It's the same. Um, yeah. Also, are you like, OK, I think that I, I think some? those things are brilliant. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Yeah, and yes. I just think it's hilarious. You know, it's great. It's are we great. able to get any any hints as to the events or the topic of your next book? Oh, um, well, I can say this. It's based on a true crime from <gasps> the 1960s me. yeah you got me. I, I'm, done. I'm a murderino myself so <laughs> oh, um, yes. stay sexy you know. and don't yes. get murdered yeah 
Um, although this is a crime I don't think they have covered yet Ooh. on that show. Um, but I I can't say too much about it, but I would say basically my pitch for this book, which I haven't sold yet, so you know, just pray for me. Um is uh Nancy Drew meets in cold blood. <gasps> Takes place that in 1961. So good. <laughs> I think it could be good. There's once again somehow I've chosen a book with a hell of a lot of violence and brutality in it, but there's also good things. So and there's another young woman, the sort of Nancy Drew type, who's at the center of it. So that's and she's also based on a true on a See, true, there you uh, go. Person. That's like doubly up our I mean, we don't we don't cover a lot of true crime, but we both yeah. love true crime. Yes. And I mean, we definitely love women's history. So well, you know what? I think if you are interested in women's history, women's issues, women's studies, it makes sense that you'd be interested in true crime because guess who all the fucking victims of crime yeah. are? Yeah. Women. You know, like nobody is a bigger um you know, expert in violence than women because it is perpetrated against women constantly, you know? So I think the whole media, there's sometimes I think the media gets a little like, we, you know, asks things like, why right. are so many women interested in these dark stories? It's like, are you kidding me? We're like, like we need to know so that we yeah. don't fall victim to it. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's equal parts, a playbook. It's a coping yeah. mechanism because yes. it's like, because because these are the horrible things that are going through your mind and i think of it course. is very comforting to confront them yeah. in it a is. safe environment exactly uh, yeah and it's also those kind of stories we run through our minds all the time because it's like okay what's the worst case scenario here on this dark corner tonight right. you know and yeah. it's it's totally it's like so logical to me and it always drives me crazy when i see those media headlines i'm like come on like think about it just think about it you know? yeah there there have been yeah. so many so many cases that have come out even just within the last six or so years where i'm like i've had that exact nightmare yeah right i have had that like uh, molly tibbetts yep she was jogging and some guy pulled up next to her and that was that was it. i'm like I have had that nightmare and I have, I've been out walking by myself yes. and had someone cat call me and be like, Oh my God, am I going to die right, right now? You're like, am I about to be abducted? Yeah. It's- a thousand percent. You know, I, I, me too. And I think basically every woman who, you know, and girl who has any self-awareness has, has had yeah. those scenarios run through their heads. So, um, but this is a, this is a story about, uh, a young woman who, has those stories running through her head and then does have to confront something. So yeah, uh, I'm not gonna say anything more than that, but that's, that's what I'm working on now. So I'll, I'll keep you, I'll keep in touch. If hopefully the book will come out. Please. And we can do it then. Yes. <laughs> get us on that pre-order list. <laughs> Absolutely. No problem. Well, and speaking of like confronting, you know, Hani, she, she was also confronting this in her way. And that, that's also very oh, yeah. inspiring. You know, yeah, just, absolutely. just seeing, seeing these, these, these women, these very normal women confronted mm-hmm. with um, like just completely unbelievable violence and just being like, nah, I'm going to do something <laughs> about that. I'm just going to like yeah. shut that down. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that Hani, I do think that, you know, the real catalyst for her making the huge change in her life was seeing these two beautiful friends of hers be have everything stripped away from them and their families 
what did there what have they ever done to anybody to deserve any of this obviously right. nothing you know and i think it was just that sense of injustice just enraged her and that fueled her ability to do what she felt she had to do and yeah. thank god she did you know right. um, yeah yeah she's a righteous you know righteous fury don't underestimate it Right. No, hell hath no fury. That's right. Like a redheaded right. woman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hitler has nightmares about are... her. Yeah, right. Exactly. And he should, you know, he should. Yeah. I, I love so, when we cover women who like Hitler personally was like, yeah, no. I'm like, yes. yes. Right. Yes. It's like, you know, you're doing something correct. Yes. Yeah. When the right yeah. people hate you, you are doing all the right things. Yeah, exactly. I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, she like it at least Hitler didn't survive the war either. Yeah. You know what I right. mean? Fuck that dude. Of that. Yeah, fuck him, you know. But and he died such a disgusting, oh, cowardly right. death, you know. It's like the thing about Hani's death, and I won't spoil that for people who even know what happens at the end. But as you know from reading the book, she has a pretty amazing moment right there at the right. end. And that was something when I first read about it, I thought, could that really be true? Right, you're like, is that fictionalized yeah. in and of itself? But, you know, the people who told us about that were the fucking Nazis who killed her, you know, and what they have no motivation to make her seem cooler than she is. Right. Yes. Like, if anything, they were they would be more likely to leave that out. So people exactly. don't know that she did what she did or it said was, what exactly. she said it was the same thing with sophie shoal before she was executed oh, she said yeah. I, I don't know i don't remember the quote but she said something like really badass and yes, totally i remember covering that in the story and i was like i mean i don't know why the nazis would lie about that because right. it just makes yeah. her seem more awesome but i know i get chills when you talk about her because she's such yeah. a just like honey she's such an incredible just exemplary human being, so incredibly courageous. You know, her story is amazing. And that's the thing. I'm so glad there are books about Sophie Scholl. Mm -hmm. I hope that eventually there will be as many books about Hani Shoft as there are about Sophie Scholl, you know, because yep. they they both deserve to have thousands of books written about them. So, and right. so do Truce and Freddie as well. And yeah. they both yeah. had very natural kind of coming around to be like, this is fucked. Yeah. Oh, oh no. Okay. We're doing something about, it. but you know, that natural evolution that I think yeah. a lot of yeah. us go through when we're confronted with injustice, right? Yeah. Not all of us yeah. are, you know, hear about something bad and we're like, okay, front lines, let's do this. Absolutely. And that's what's, that's what's so good about these stories of just very average people because yeah. we're all those people. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when I was writing it, um, of course, you know, a lot of stuff was going down in the years after 2016. Yeah. <laughs> and I live in Colorado and I, you know, you probably remember when uh, families were being held in cages at the Mexican border and separate children separated from their families. And I honestly sitting here in my house in Colorado, uh, which is about, you know, eight hours from the Mexican border I finally, I couldn't take it anymore. I felt like such a hypocrite. And I went down to the border and protested at, at the Ciudad Juarez down there because I just thought, I cannot write this book and be just sitting here doing nothing. And it actually got me much more 
after I did that, I became much more involved with like sort of immigrants rights mm -hmm. issues and refugee, uh, you know, groups in this area. We all, they're in every area because there's refugees everywhere. Yeah. And it's really been an amazing change in my life for the better because it's helped me become more involved in my own sort of social justice issues in my own community. So yeah. I attribute that solely to the, the model of Hani and Truce and Freddie, you know? That is so incredible. That is. And really, I mean, that's the real gift of their stories and continuing yeah. to tell those stories is right. how can we take these virtues from these people that we admire and then apply them in our lives? Because yeah. the, none of this ended, you know, the, these kinds of right. issues are still going on. And yeah. as depressing as that is, it's also really wonderful to think that each one of us can do something to yeah. make it better. And they, they can be small things, you know, I mean... Not everybody in the Netherlands who supported the resistance, you know, shot Nazis, but right. it's a form of resistance to look at your next door neighbor's house and realize that they're probably hiding Jewish people in there and just deciding to not say anything about it. Yeah, that's a form of resistance. You know, just none of the Jews who survived would have survived without these very small actions by people all around them, you know, or you might maybe people would like anonymously leave extra food at the doorsteps of some of these people because they knew they were feeding some secret people in there. You know, yeah. that is an important form of resistance that could make a world of difference to people. So I don't think any action is too small. Right. Well, on that actually hopeful note, right? Yes. <laughs> now I think that, we, now that we all feel happy, we brought it Yay. back. We we dragged it from the depths. <laughs> yeah. We're here now. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You talked now, about. A, yeah. Go ahead. No, no. I was going to say there's a lot to be, you know, there's a lot of ways to take something hopeful and inspiring from this book, and you know, even though it was tough to work on this material for seven years as I did. Um, you know, at the end of it, I, I'm not depressed now. Right. I feel inspired that these people lived amongst us, you yeah. know, and, and did it. And we're still telling their stories. So that in, in itself is inspiring. See, it took seven years because you needed mental health breaks. Yes. <laughs> God knows I did. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's okay. I took plenty of those. Don't Good. worry. <laughs> um, but yeah, now that you mentioned another book coming out and all that stuff, yeah. where can our listeners find you and stuff about To Die Beautiful and everything like that? Yeah. Um, well, I have a website, buzzyjackson.com. You can see how that wouldn't work if it was sarahjackson.com. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of those. Yeah. I love that. TM, TM, <laughs> Buzzy Jackson. That's right. Um, so buzzyjackson.com, that has a bunch of, it has some extra material. You know, like I said, it has some photos of some of the real people in the book. Um, it also has like a whole book club kit for people who want to mm -hmm. read it with their book club. There's stuff there. And then I am, spend way too much time on Instagram in particular. So you can find me there, Buzzy Jackson. And I'm also uh, really a new and very dorky user of TikTok. So Ooh. you can find me on TikTok under Buzzy Jackson as well. Just please don't judge me too harshly. You um, are so we don't much even more have advanced. A TikTok, so. I, yeah, I know. I yeah, like no TikTok. I keep thinking about it because I see all this really too, cool yeah. content, but I'm like, it also looks exhausting. Yeah. I don't I have know. time for I, that. I just decided if I'm going to do TikTok, it just has to be me holding the phone up saying something and that's it. Like yeah. I'm not going to 
no bells and whistles. I'm not going to put on makeup for it if I'm not wearing makeup. Like I'm just going right. to do it. And so I try to take away some of those those barriers to entry. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I think I've posted like 10 TikToks, but I'm working on it. I'm working on it. So anywhere, you know, you can just Google me. It's pretty easy to find Buzzy Jackson out there. <laughs> and uh, we will put all of this in the description of the episode so you can easily Thanks. connect with Buzzy. Um and then be on the lookout for my new fan fiction, Buzzy Jackson, stunt girl reporter, uncovering <laughs> corruption in the big city. <laughs> I love that. You absolutely, please do that. You have you have my 100% permission to take that on. Again, that putting that so on the fun. website. Yeah, right. <laughs> Again, put Buzzy okay. Jackson, TM, TM, TM. We're going yeah. to make you like the new Nancy Drew, but as a reporter. Like, yes. I love, I love it. I love it. Oh, my Thank, God. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for doing this great show and for highlighting all the women you've already highlighted. It's just looking through your archives was like, really, that was really inspiring in itself, honestly. It's like, oh, thank God, like people are out there caring about these awesome people and bringing them to back into our consciousness. It's really wonderful that you're doing it and in such a fun and engaging way. So I really appreciate you having me on. And that's coming from someone who has their PhD from UC Berkeley. This this is an actual historian (laughs) saying that, guys. Listen, I mean, you guys probably reach more people than the average historian does, let's face it. So you're doing really good work. And I, for one, very much appreciate it. I'm not crying. You're crying. I'm not having feelings. It's fine. (laughs) I'm going to go take a mental health break. It's fine. (laughs) That's right. That's okay, too. Well, Buzzy, thank you so much. We are so thankful for you being willing to come on the show. We're so thankful for your support. And we're so thankful that you wrote this book. Seriously. And so your good. other books and your upcoming book. And then I found out you're a murderino. Because I, I was even going to say, I'm like, oh, like, Georgia and Karen covered Hanny and the the Overseekin sisters, I'm pretty sure. Like, the story's yeah. getting out there in these cool I little know. ways. and. They- they did cover yeah. her yeah. and I was really happy about that. So yeah, no, thank you. I, it's a, it's a real treat. It's a real treat to be here. I appreciate it. You guys are great. Thank you. Oh, thank thank you. you so much. Well, thank you so much for listening to another very special episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningabouthistory.com where you can find our merch, a link to our buy me a coffee, a link to our Patreon, all that fun stuff. Also, raise five stars wherever you listen and definitely check out Buzzy Jackson and all of her amazing work. Mm-hmm. And as always, I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. I'm Buzzy. And have an empowered day. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>